The, the session is called The Inner Sound of the Outer World and it's about the discrepancy between emotional and technical aspects of any occurrence. And preconditionally, um, this is also about original recordings a lot because original recordings for me, well, actually they enticed me into doing radio, um, are for me the, a nice way to, to establish closeness to the world. And um, uh, my psychotherapist says that I'm doing that to overcome my solitude rooted in my childhood. <laughs> and it may well be. Um, what I mean uh, by the term of original recordings is recordings that capture life. And that can be everything. Um, for me, original recordings would be more original if they are outside in the world and not being recorded in the studio. But since this is also an aspect of life, being in the studio, this, in, in fact, everything is an original recording. But what I found most valuable and most difficult to record are scenes in in real life, where you, as, a, <clears throat> as somebody who is recording these scenes, do not interfere too much. For example, uh, going with somebody to a job interview and just record the job interview, and, uh, and that, that is a scene that is something that is very valuable. And uh, a radio documentary, I do one-hour radio documentaries, can become very, very lively and very um, fast by putting scenes together and not so much interviews or pre-recorded things or texts that are recorded from actors in the studio. But since interviews are the most common uh, and indispensable, we will record most of the time. Uh, I decided to, to, or I tried to do a melange uh, between scenes and interviews. I tried to start with an interview which is also for the interviewee the, the most uh, common situation to be asked for an interview and it's, it's not so disturbing and then I try to turn it into something more lively by moving, for example, by asking questions that do not fit in the conventional interview, maybe. Um, to get a reaction, you know, a reaction that, that comes from the person I want to characterize, because what I think features radio documentaries are best at is not to gather information but to show something, to, to get an impression of something. So the information we get in an interview is, for me, the least interesting. Um, I just want to play you a little example to make this presentation also a little bit more lively. Um, so it's a scene um, in Kabul. I made a one-hour documentary about German soldiers in Afghanistan right after the US invasion of Afghanistan. Um, and we, it's a very small excerpt in, in the middle of an interview with a soldier. You don't understand what he's saying, but you don't have to. It's, it's even better. Paragraph 12. Kameradschaft. Der Zusammenhalt der Bundeswehr beruht auf Kameradschaft. Unser Leben zu Hause spielt sich doch sehr häufig in der Anonymität ab. Diese Anonymität ist hier ausgeschlossen. Man ist mit den Leuten verbunden. Und man muss sich, ja, das ist nichts, das ist eine ganz normale Sprengung. 
Sie zucken, wir zucken nicht. Daran können Sie schon sehen, dass man auch mit diesen Dingen umzugehen lernt. So what happened was I was just interviewing the soldier and in the back of him a few hundred meters away a big detonation took place and he didn't even bat an eyelash <laughs> and I fell off the chair and he interrupted his stream of talking not because of the explosion but because of me falling off the chair. You know? <laughs> and then he laughed and said, yeah, you see the difference between a soldier and, and somebody who's not used to it. And um, this, I don't know really why I play. This is just, uh, well, maybe it has two reasons. First, to show that out of a normal interview situation, uh, I, I was not responsible for turning it into something else, but it could always happen. And the person you want to characterize um, behaving and not just talking, you know. Um, I used this. this. This is really not about... Um, I didn't alter the scene in any way. It was like mo mostly the original recording. Because um, I wanted to stick to reality. Um, so this, what you just heard, is not a representation of what I felt at the time, but um, an outside view that I used to characterize the soldier and to some extent to characterize myself. Um, It, it has no, nothing to do with the inner sound uh, that I will try to get at later. This is just like a negative example. Um, <laughs> it was the, in the beginning of my work, and uh, it, it's also nice not to... I mean, the inner sound would more... I used this uh, explosion not to shock the listener. It surprises the listener, maybe, but the listener is not shocked. But I could arrange it by sound design into a shock for the listener. The shock that I felt I could, you know, uh, convey to the listener. Um, and that would become closer to what I mean by inner sound. But in this case, I don't think it's necessary. Um, thank you. Okay. Okay. Well, yes. At that time, that was 2002, I thought that... Uh, sound recordings were one-to-one -one representations of reality. And um, I dared not to modify these recordings in any way. Uh, I, I didn't dare to alter the recording also because in the beginning of my uh, uh, radio work I had a very high uh, respect of original recordings. I thought they were one-to-one -one representations of reality and you could not alter them in any way it would be And, and that's what I also liked so much about sound, because um, you, can, you can change images very much. You can, images can lie. Um, but if you temper with sound, you will notice. Um, sound is always very true. So that's also why I thought, no, I, I, cannot, I cannot interfere there. Um, if people told me, well, that squishy sound you used... Um, I didn't recognize that was meant to be a train. I always replied, well, this is what a train really sounds like. <laughs> And I felt pity for them, for their <laughs> deplorable acoustic uh, retardedness. 
So one day I met Matthias Lampert, who did the sound for Run Lola Run, a German movie that some of you know. Um, and he played me an excerpt of the of the movie, and this this has become for me really a crucial experience to change my um, my thinking about sound and truth. There's this American expression to share something with each other. <laughs> so uh, I, I would like to show you my crucial experience. Um, um, what happens there is. Uh, Maybe you remember it, Lola is shot accidentally by a policeman who really didn't want to do that. My lonely nights are through deep. Dave Lyman! Since you said you were She falls down, and in this moment where that happens, it's a great shock for the for the viewer, uh, because of the sound design, because all natural atmosphere, the music, everything that you heard from sounds, of sounds, is interrupted, and you hear nothing. Although the picture stays on Lola, uh, you are inside of her, and being in that shock, in that silence, and then her her boyfriend goes slowly to her and lets his gun drop to the ground. And in the moment the, the metal of the gun hits the street, uh, you hear totally unnaturalistic sound. Um, something completely else than the real sound is. Um, if you understand the language and if you are not uh, told to listen to the sound especially, to pay attention to that, uh, you don't notice. Um, because I think that Matthias Lampert told me they have been working two weeks on that little sound um, because they tried to find a sound that matches the emotionality of the scene, that it will be a sound that fits inside the world of shock and not destroy the world of shock. And so this is what they came up with. And I think it works really well. Um, if, you d if you pay attention to it, maybe it will still strike you very awkward. But if you, if you just are impressed watching the movie, then you don't notice, and that's a good sign. And when I realized that, um, also the use of music in the movie, and uh, Lola talking to her boyfriend through a, through a glass front of a supermarket, very in low voice, uh, very intimately, um, which couldn't physically happen, I realized, okay, this is also a truth. Um, it's not the physical truth, but it's also a very important truth. And so why not give this truth a room in radio documentary? And this is really, it sounds a little bit naive maybe, but this really changed my whole perspective on my work. Because I always had moments where I felt something to be true, but it's not tangible in any way in the recordings or even in, in descriptions. And I, I dared to, to go to that, these points and to um, 
to make an effort to relay these, these feelings to the listeners because I thought they are more valuable than the information I gathered in an interview or in any situation. Um, and I want to play you an example of how, how after that I, I try the first um, possibility for me to, to go one step further into the inner sound of the outer world. It's, um, it's a four-minute or three-and-a-half-minute sequence. You, wouldn't, you won't understand a word again. I, I was working for a long time about Berlin drug addict prostitutes, and this was one half-an-hour portrait I was asked to do about a, a prostitute minor of age. It's a 15-year-old girl that uh, prostitutes herself in Berlin. I have followed her for a few days, and I tried to make a portrait of her of uh, half an hour length. Um, and she's very... She could tell very well about her life. Um, but there are some experiences she could not, not describe. Um, and... And I would like to ask you just to follow her voice and lis listen a little bit to the musical score in that excerpt. She's talking about drugs and music. So we are driving in a car and she's putting a cassette of hers into the car stereo. So, zur Love Parade habe ich dann meine erste Pille gefressen. Vor der Love Parade ähm, habe ich ja am Zoo gehangen und so und eigentlich ja nur Koks und Kiffe gehabt und danach in der Love Parade habe ich dann Peppen probiert, Speed probiert, ähm, LSD probiert. Was hatte ich denn dann noch alles gefressen gehabt? Ich habe dann auch Pilze gefressen gehabt und was waren das da alles? Dazu habe ich dann noch alles mögliche, also alles, was es an Drogen gab, habe ich dann an der Love gefressen. Das war dann über Tage halt. Ach ja. Können wir das reinmachen? Okay, warte. natürlich auch zu Hause Techno und auch in der Diskothek und ähm, Techno auf E zu hören und auf Speed und so. Techno gibt einem das Gefühl von, also zu Ecstasy und Peppen ist also Techno die geeignetste Droge, also äh, die eignet, geeignetste Musikrichtung. <lacht> Sogar nachher Love fing es dann so erstmal an, dass ich immer mehr konsumierte. Dann fing ich an, mit einer Freundin immer feiern zu gehen. Ja, und seitdem ich feiern gehe, fing ich dann richtig krass mit Ecstasy, Peppen und anderen Dingen los. Zum Beispiel, wenn man drauf ist und Techno hört und immer nur diesen Beat und diesen Bass und es ist einfach nur Träumen, einfach in einer anderen, ganz anderen, auf einem ganz anderen Level ist man da. Es ist ein ganz 
total geiles Körpergefühl erstens. Der Bass geht durch einen durch, man spürt den Bass und, und den Beat direkt im, im Körper drinne und man ist drauf und ach, das ist völlig schwer zu erklären, glaub mir. Es ist einfach ein unbeschreiblich tolles Gefühl. Come into my dream. Let me show you where I've been. It's you and me I've seen. Let me tell you what I mean. In the deep blue skies, there were rainbows in the night. natürlich mehr Ausgaben und wollte mir natürlich endlich mal wieder was leisten können und so weiter. Naja, und an Geld bin ich dann sozusagen durch Jennifer gekommen. Hier fängt jetzt die Kurfürsten an. So, this was a very, very cheap method um, that I'm partly ashamed of also. Um, it, I had hours of recording of her telling her, her life and telling she only prostituted herself uh, to get the money for the drugs and the drugs were com connected to the music and the music was connected to be in a different world than she came from because she wanted to forget this world and so nothing in her life explaining or portraying her made sense without this room where I could not enter really with my microphones. It was like walking down a hotel corridor and all the doors were just closed and, and you could see the names on the doors like dancing, having fun, but you don't, you, I didn't get a feeling for it. You, I couldn't enter the rooms. So this was my first attempt to enter one of these rooms and I asked her to uh, what, she, what music she Uh, liked and what she heard and this was her favorite song and um, and then we went to a discotheque and we took drugs because I wanted to find out what, what I wanted to describe, how it felt and um, and then the, you know, the, the only it's, it's really cheap to m use music that blankly, you know um, but what What I took care to do is, is to let the music come out of the original recordings. It's, it's not like, and now we turn on the music and you have a totally different room. It, it kind of emerges from the original scene, and that's, that's the only thing I like about it. Um, do you have a question about that? Did the music open those doors? Is that, if we were to keep listening, if I understood German, would that be what happened? Um, I don't know. But it, it, it might be individually very different. For me, it opened totally. This, this kind of, you know, you, you always hear somebody talking about something. Uh, so you, if you don't understand German, you could imagine a lot that she, she would get across. But she doesn't. She can make it. She cannot make it plausible. Really, I think that what that little music excerpt would express. For me, it does open a door, but only halfway. <laughs> It did actually happen, but I recorded her for many days, and I, I listened to what I recorded at home in the studio, and, um, and I realized I need that 
to, to make it more lively, and I ask her to put it in, really. So, so this little sentence uh, and action was really a prompted thing. Um, my question, maybe I missed this when I was listening to it, um, maybe because I don't understand German, or maybe I was just listening to a long, focusing on a long thing, but why did it start sounding like it was coming from the other side of the door? I think it's because it's in the car. Music can sound very muffled. I think that's it. It was not intended to to sound like. Oh, because it just sounded to me suddenly like I was outside of the car. I see. Yeah. Inside the car, and I just wondered why. Yeah, that's bad. Actually, um, I recorded her in the same car in the same position earlier, so uh, I could edit her voice because it was not. It was uh, yeah, because also the the idea of when she talks about music, playing music, came to me afterwards after I recorded her. So, so we sat in the car listening to the music, not talking, and then we turned off the music and talked more. It's, yeah. But I didn't want, I'm sorry, I, I didn't want to, uh, this, is, this is really meant to be an example of how crude I, I, <laughs> I try to, because, because I think the inner sound for me is, is even more convincing if it's not music, but if it's done in a different way, you know, so, so maybe. It became clearer to me that the textual content was uh, just one little aspect and maybe not so important as the sensual content. Um, every, every sound and in fact every sensation creates an emotional echo in me or in, in the people I work with and uh, I, I came also by that experience closer to, to uh, putting more weight on that echo. Um, because I think radio documentary is more about um, giving this emotional echo and acoustical existence than arranging the statements and assertions you get from your interview partners normally. I interview a lot of politicians and managers and people. I, I don't like to do personal stories so much. Um, so I always have the problem of, of, of getting text that is like stone, you know. So... Um, I want to play you another, it was all in the same research about young prostitutes in Berlin that I met Jenny during a research. Uh, I met Jenny who told me that she died some time ago uh, from an overdose of heroin and was brought back to life by modern medicine and how she woke up after a few weeks and her mother was there with whom she had a very difficult relationship because her mother's lover was the one who raped her regularly and the mother decided to stick with a man and not with a daughter. So, terrible story. Um, during my research I have heard these stories uh, more than a, maybe 40 times, but this particular story really gripped me because maybe of the metaphor of coming back to life after a coma. Also, the quality of the voice of Jenny uh, really gripped me because in, in the process of being revived, they had to cut her throat 
and they uh, damaged a little bit the uh, vocal cords, and so her voice is really very uh, coarse. Um, so I was listening to her story. I, I met her on the street, and I knew sometimes you really have to start recording right away because you may never see the person again. So we went into the next bar, and she told me her story, and I was so totally in her story. I was totally... The way she told it was really totally fascinating, and I, I didn't even ask many questions, and I, I uh, submerged into the story. And when I was in the studio, I heard that. Sprecht ihr miteinander und habt ein ganz gutes Verhältnis? Nö. Sie hat mich damals im Krankenhaus, obwohl ich Überdose hatte, hat sie mich gepflegt im Krankenhaus. Weil sie ist selber Krankenschwester. Und die hat keinen an mich rangelassen. Und die hat mich gewickelt, weil ich musste Windeln tragen. Das ging I was totally disappointed. Nothing that I had, I had experienced was in the recording. Nothing, absolutely nothing. Not only because of the background, uh, but also mostly because of the background. Um, so what I try to show you is uh, that, uh, that I came to the conclusion it's not, it's not always uh, possible to, to use the original material and to kind of stimulate it, motivate it, enhance it. But sometimes in the situation where you make an experience, you have to alter the situation altogether in order to get the material that you hear in, with your ears, anyway, with your inner ears, you know, not with the technical ears. So I asked her to, to come to a studio and I, I was very lucky that she was very reliable and nice and uh, we went, this was the only time I did an interview in a really broadcasting studio uh, and it sounded like that. Was war das Erste, was du sozusagen gesehen hast? Gar nichts, weil ich konnte ihn nicht sehen. Beschreibt es kam es kam so einen Tag später erst, da konnte ich erst wieder Sachen auch erkennen. Da kam dann auch meine Mutter vorbei und ich saß im Rollstuhl und ich habe, also meine Mutter stand vor mir. This was what I have experienced. It was exactly that sound and it was so unbearable to listen to her for half an hour speaking like that with barely getting air and uh, so that I had to alter this again in order to make it more and I was criticized for it a lot because uh, we Germans think people have to suffer <laughs> but I, I, yeah, I also think I think of radio to entertain to, to use entertainment as a as a way to get the attention, you know. So, so I, did, I did something with the sound. I, I used music and... But uh, I, I don't have that as an example right now. Um, <laughs> what do you do? You made the, the breathiness lower? Or what did, what did you do that? I, I just put some other... Because it was absolutely... Uh, the, 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 
Yeah, it, it, you, you, there's nothing, there's not even a room because it's a studio, you know. It, it would have been different. Uh, going back now, I would have re liked to record her in my living room or some, some real room, you know. But since it's a studio, you're, you're like in space. And uh, it became, you, you were just too close to her. And I just introduced very broken electrical noises that some people especially the component calls music, and um, <laughs> that, that took away the tension a little bit, and, and nothing else. It's not a melody or something I put underneath. It just made it easier to listen to her. Um, the first thing was never again drugs. That the never again das war so mein erster Gedanke. Weil ich wusste ja schon, warum ich da liege. Ja, ähm. This is a. The question connected with this is really very. Must the story evolve from the original recordings? Or must the original recordings fit the story? And who does the story belong to? I mean, obviously, I had an idea of her story. Later, when I played that uh, with a bar background noise, people listening a lot to that um, said it's, it's nice because the bar background is so absurd um, and so contradicting to her story that, that it, it has a value too. Um, so obviously, it was my story that I wanted to... Um, It, the, this, this question really is, I, I mean, it, it may be for you clear that everybody would record her again, but really it's a, it's a question um, of who the story belongs to and what story you want to... Because if my idea of her story might not be her story, it, it's also my story that I see in her that touches me, you know. And I, I wanted to give that story a room, and um, I think doing radio documentaries, it's very important to reflect on what story I want to tell and to be critical about that also. Um, so, so in order you, that you don't become a Steven Spielberg who, whatever he does, always just tries to tell his story. And, um, you know, the, the story about the lost childhood, uh, it's, it's in E.T., it's in Artificial Intelligence, and even what really made me very angry in the Holocaust movie he did, um, it's just his story of, of his lost childhood, and um, it really bothers me if, if he turns a totally different story into, into just that sentimental crap. Um, Can I ask a question about yes? Would you have considered, if you couldn't find her again, having someone else, uh, like transcribing her original words and then having someone else say them? This would not be an option for me, I, I, not in that case. I, I would do it in other situations, but it's, um, I, what really interested me in her also was that the voice represented a lot of the character she, that came across for me. Um, so, so I had a really an acoustical um, representation of who she was without even telling something on the textual uh, level. And it would not have worked, I think, uh, with uh, somebody doing that, yes. 
So we have to be careful not to, to put too much of our story in, in, in arranging just what we want to hear uh, with, with the story of a different person. But um, we have to keep a balance too because it's, it's us that, that have responded to that story with, with an inner sound. And that's very important, I think. But where lies the truth? from Robert Wyatt uh, it's called uh, Stay Tuned um, there's, a, there's hope and promise in the lyrics but there's a grave sadness in the music and this is a contradiction what it amounts to as far as a message goes is completely different than what the title suggests which is Stay Tuned in, in fact it's a farewell a uh, strongly lamented one, but still a farewell. For me, for everyone, it makes it a lot harder to live with, I think, being asked to come closer and, in fact, being told to go away, but it happens all the time. Um, this may sound very personal, and indeed the song was given to me by someone who I miss very much, but when and since these situations like these take place all the time, um, working in radio... Um, it's also about finding out means to express the totality of, of these contradictions of life. This, this is interesting for me because the, the, the inner sound uh, can be really going totally against the textual content of the... and the, I would connect the textual content more to the outer world. And uh, who wins? <laughs> And I think it's very clear that the impression, if you, if you carry it in your head or in your heart, um, this song for, for a day, I think the sadness wins. And so it becomes clear that, that the real intention of the, of the song is a farewell for whatever motive, even though you're asked uh, to come closer, maybe, you, you're pushed away. And... Um, Yes, the, um, what that, I, I just play that to you to, to show you that, that, my, um, that 
my um, uh, because I think the strength of radio documentary is not to be found in the conclusions, not in something you can put into one sentence, uh, but in illustrating the process that has led to the conclusions. So I think a radio documentary without a message, a really message that you could put into a sentence, is a good one. Um, because if you could put it into a sentence, then you could just broadcast that sentence and save a lot of time. Um, so I really feel like I cannot tell how the world is and how it works. Uh, but I can trace, or I can try to trace, uh, what the world has caused in me. This is really the only thing I can make a, some kind of assertion about. Um, recording, I have always seen myself as a medium, as a vehicle, um, through that people might speak and events take place that otherwise would have remained in silence. The next natural step for me was to record myself and to move through every chamber of the research as the listener substitute, as someone who makes an experience in place of the listener to make it for him, because the listener doesn't have time because he's a manager in a, in a, in a yeah, we, we'll hear that where he is. Um, so I felt like a, the listener's agent. Um, and th that's why I decided at one point to um, record myself. And this is, at last, uh, something you have a translation for. Uh, it's called Lifestyle, Why the Vietnamese Don't Wear Adidas Shoes. And it's a, it's a radio documentary about Adidas and the, yeah, some kind of globalization aspects. Um, and in this scene, I'm visiting Adidas headquarters in Germany. Bavaria. Adidas Headquarters. Hier kein Verkauf. Die World of Sports ist groß und leer. Von den vielen tausend Angestellten, die hier arbeiten, ist nur eine Frau am Empfang zu sehen, hier den Herrn die für mich versucht, Kontakt zu einem der 120 Mitarbeiter der Presseabteilung aufzunehmen. Äh, eine Frage an Sie. Schönen guten Tag. Nachdem ich 14 Telefonate geführt und neun Faxe und 23 E-Mails hierher geschickt habe, die alle konsequent verleugnet oder vergessen wurden, dachte ich, am besten komme ich selbst mal vorbei. Dann dachte ich, wäre es auch gar nicht so schlecht, hier mal äh, spontan aufzutauchen. Nach 14 weiteren Telefonaten entdeckt dann der Leiter der Öffentlichkeitsarbeit, oder wie es hier heißt, der Head of PR, in seinem Terminkalender fünf Minuten Zeit. Vielen Dank. Hallo, Hallo. Hallo freuen Sie mich. Ja, ganz Soweit ich sehen kann, sind alle, die hier arbeiten, sportlich, schön und sexy. Nur ich bin nicht sportlich. Das ist mir gerade so peinlich, dass ich jetzt so... Warum denn? Ja, dass ich so unangemeldet auftauche. Vielen Dank. Hallo. Guten Tag. Ja, tut mir leid, dass ich jetzt... Kein Problem, wir wollen Brücke hin, hallo. Ja, wenn wir helfen können, machen wir das gerne. Es ist nur heute. Normalerweise ist das, mag ich auch solche Menschen, die sehr spontan sind, weil ich selber ein sehr spontaner Mensch bin. Und dann, okay, dann ist das ein bisschen, ein bisschen, ein bisschen, ein bisschen, ein bisschen.
Okay. Ähm, ähm, ja, ich meine, ich möchte gerne nach dem Zusammenhang zwischen Adidas, Lifestyle und Vietnam fragen, aber nicht gleich mit der Tür ins Haus fallen und wähle stattdessen eine fachkundige Herangehensweise. Stichwort Outsourcing. Da bin ich nicht ganz der richtige Ansprechpartner, weil da gibt es ja bei uns nochmal eine Corporate-PR-Stelle. Dann, und, ja. ähm, wie, wie kam es jetzt vom Familienbetrieb zu so einem Konzern, der wirklich in jedem Land der Welt präsent ist? Also, wie würden Sie sagen... Ich denke, auch das kann man nur ganz schwer beschreiben, ne? Dieser Schritt tatsächlich vom Familienunternehmen zum weltweit tätigen Unternehmen ähm, ist nahezu äh, fließend übergegangen. Es gab hier keinen, ähm, keinen einschneidenden Punkt, der das genau beschreiben kann. Äh, die Industrie hat sich äh, verändert, die Wirtschaft hat sich verändert äh, und so kam da natürlich auch eins zum anderen. Also Sie würden sagen, es ist schwer, das, schwer, das ein bisschen zu beschreiben. Also das, äh, ist die Frage klar. an sich ist, 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 ja, ist, ja, ist ja. Da ich so nicht weiterkomme und mir nur noch zwei Minuten Zeit bleiben, sage ich einfach, dass ich nur etwas über ein paar Schuhe wissen möchte. Schuhe mit dem Namen Lifestyle. 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 Äh, Entschuldigung. Mann, hi, Oliver sehr. Ich habe hier einen Herrn Jarisch, einen Journalisten, der für den RBB arbeitet, der sehr kurzfristig sich entschieden hat, zu uns zu kommen, sehr spontan. Ja, ich kann mich kurz vorstellen. Hallo. Hat sich ganz spontan entschieden, zu uns zu kommen. Ja, Und da wir auch ein sportliches Unternehmen sind, haben wir jetzt auch spontan zumindest ein paar Perfekt. Minuten Zeit gehabt. Flexibel, genau, ähm, muss man ja sein. Ja, okay. Mhm. Vielen, vielen Dank. Ich bin dankbar, ohne eigentlich zu wissen, wofür. Mit Schuhen haben die Leute hier nicht viel zu tun. Und das soll der Nabel der Adidas-Welt sein? Ja, wir, wir, wir bekennen uns ja ganz klar hier zum Standort Herzogenaurach. Und hier ist eben diese Historie und diese so, so, so Roots, um auch mal so ein englisches Wort zu benutzen. Und es ist ein ganz klares Be Bekenntnis zu dem Standort Herzogenaurach. Ist, ist das eine Art von Sentimentalität? Ich würde mal sagen, es ist eine, eine Art von ähm, historischem, historischem Denken und einfach auch diesen, diesen Spirit. Ich glaube, auch dieser Spirit von, vom Gründer, vom, vom Adi Dassler, wird auch nach wie vor gelebt. Hm. <lacht> um, yeah, the Spirit of Adi Dassler, who I think the real name was Adolf Dassler. <lacht> yes, this, um, this radio documentary really was the proof for me to... Um, that the, my quest for the inner sound made sense. Because um, all the time I spoke to, to these representatives in Vietnam, in Hong Kong, in, in Germany, um, and everything was, was fine. It was a perfect world, no problems. The, uh, even the factory uh, girls I spoke to were happy. And something was wrong, and I had a suspicion, but uh, I didn't find anywhere to, to, to put my finger on. Um, and the best way to, to show that was to, to show that the, it was a perfect world, but also to, to put in little things that showed my suspicion. And it was such a, such a good situation to catch them unaware and to find out what they really know, and they know nothing. And 
Um, but with the inner sound, I mean that suspicion. You know, you, you, you do 20 interviews all over the world and it's, everything looks fine. There's no, nobody uh, forced to do the job in the factory. Nobody really suffers, obviously. Uh, but yet, you still have a very strange, awkward feeling. And uh, this is the inner sound that you just have to pursue. And then it came to that scene that I used in the feature as an opening scene, although it was uh, at the end of my research, in order to make people laugh, in order to show how, how um, harmless everything is. And then the story goes a totally different way. And I do find pictures to, to express the, the suspicion I had from the beginning on. Um, so, the inner sound, I use this expression, the inner sound, not only to remind myself that the cold hard facts are not as hard as the evidence really is, um, but also I use the inner sound as a metaphor for an opinion or, or a feeling. In the Adidas story, did you have to get releases? In other words, if they were to use the material? If they were suspicious, did you just go ahead and just, you know, innocently sign the releases like it's okay? This is what you got? Ah, uh, this in uh, this is a really very difficult. It's a good question because this this uh, it's a very difficult situation in Germany. Um, I am asked to get permission each time I do an interview in writing with signature that I can use the material for whatever I want to. Uh, I never do that. And um, in fact, before it was broadcast, Adidas wanted to have the broadcast and the script. And um, at my broadcasting station, there were at least six, uh, uh, how do you call them? Like the lawmen? Lawyers. Uh, lawyers. Yeah, lawyers. <laughs> uh, to, thank you. Uh, to, they were prepared. <laughs> and. Um, And I think they didn't, re Adidas didn't, didn't intervene. Uh, I think they didn't do it because first, they, I connected them with, with child prostitution, I connected them with a murder, and this is, this is something that, that radio documentary can do, suggest things, and not saying you are murderous, but I, I traced the, um, the leading head of Adidas in Vietnam, back to the 90s where he was working for Nike, which is, I found very surprising, but it's usual in the business. And there was a murder of a, of a woman, of a factory worker in a factory that didn't belong to Adidas or Nike, but since it was in Indonesia and there was a military regime, one murder stood for the whole uh, factory workers. It was, a, it was like an um, example uh, to threaten all of the factory workers. So it had to do with Nike and Adidas. And I just, I just told in the end of, of the radio documentary, he was there at the same time, uh, at the same place where this girl was murdered and showing journalists around how nice the factories were. This was kind of the sentence I used. And so they couldn't pin that down to a lawsuit, and 
even if they try to in Germany, it's very different to the United States. The press has a much stronger standing there. Um, also, this is not public radio. This is the state-owned radio. And if Adidas would go into court, it would be in all the headlines. And it would, even if they had the right to do that, uh, it, would be, it would turn against them anyway. So they didn't. But we were sweating. <laughs> because there was a different case where, where a fr uh, colleagues of mine uh, really had to pay a lot of money. More questions? No, then I carry on. Um, so what would you have done had it been, had someone sat there and spouted off the company line to you? So even though you're shambling kind of questions, what if somebody, would it, wouldn't that have been disappointing? Would you have used it? No, uh, sometimes I use things like that in order to show how, how the, the pre-manufactured statements are and that they are pre-manufactured. But mostly I don't use them and I try to break it open somehow. And I have another example to show you how. Um, with politicians. I hate politicians. They, they're really robots. Um, except Obama, of course. <laughs> I am... Uh, it's some music a little bit that comes from the movie uh, Lost in Translation. <laughs> um, it's also this, that uh, from, from hours of recording and from hours of interviews to choose from, I chose, uh, 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 I, I chose the moments that communication did not take place because those moments fitted my uh, feeling better than the moments where the communication did take place. And uh, things like that. And the commentaries, I think, are very important that I say uh, I'm thankful, but I don't know why. Um, these are little inserts commentating the whole situation that I think draw you into, into where I want to have you. <laughs> um, yeah, you had a question? Um, yeah, and since you did this at the end of your research, when you presumably were very knowledgeable about the topic, did you really go into headquarters not knowing what question you wanted to ask? Uh, well, I did very well what I wanted to get at. Um, I played the naive. Uh, that's why I told you <laughs> I, I felt... You were, you were acting a bit. Um, not really, because I was totally put off by their having five minutes time and I had like 2,000 questions. And I didn't... I wasn't very experienced and had a, like a plan B. <laughs> so, so when they told me, okay, what's your question? For the five minutes, I thought, okay, this question, this question, what's the most important thing I can I can ask now? You know, I was really set, taken aback a lot. So I I, I don't play really. I, I I think also in this naivety, I am myself. You know, I I can I can be like that, and uh, be very impressed by the greatness of a corporate world. So I, I don't want to put on a show. This is something I don't like about Michael Moore, for example, also. This is, I don't want to play, but I, I want to be authentic in every aspect of it, but I knew more than I showed. But then, this is, this is a normal position for an interviewer. I mean, you don't tell the people what you know. You, you ask them what they know, you know. 
And I am often asked, do you consider yourself to be a journalist? And um, because, because the reflection on, on the emotionality in a work of art is so much taken for granted as it is not in a piece of journalism. Um, so people are doubting that I'm a journalist sometimes. Um, so I'm using means of expression that are quite often questions by my colleagues. Um, but still, yes, I do call myself a journalist, not because I see myself employing the same methods as the journalists, the top journalists of the trade, but because I think that journalism should be exactly like what I'm doing. I think taking into account more than just the statements um, is, is a core um, Aufgabe. Yeah, it's a yeah, assignment yeah, of journalism. Sometimes I read an interview in a newspaper and some journalist tries to squeeze in something like uh, he wears these and these socks with a, with a suit. And I, I really like those, those things because they tell... I, I wouldn't say they tell more than the interview, but they give a different dimension that is just part of the whole story. I, I hate these, these singled out truths that are not true because they are too singled out. <laughs> um, and so, like, I work, I don't think it has anything to do with art, if so, with craft, maybe. Um, but it has to do, really, with transparency, openness, and also acknowledging weaknesses. What I also don't like is this expert pressure. You only can talk about anything uh, like water shortage or if you are an expert and you have to know everything as a journalist. People demand from you. Otherwise they, they criticize you just because you don't know everything. But part of feeling like a medium is also the naivety. I think it's totally okay to go somewhere having read just what everybody would read if he was or she well informed and then ask the normal questions, you know, the, the questions that come from the heart maybe and not making a professional talk out of something. For example, the national debt. Uh, your national debt will grow to an extent that our national debt has grown <laughs> to in the past 10 years because of the seven hundred billion dollar help for the banks who just ran out of money. Um, and I did, a, I did a, a radio documentary about the national debt of Germany. And it's a very, very difficult topic. Uh, it's a question, if, what is a national debt? Uh, do we need it? Um, and um, oh, this was really difficult work. Um, to give you some figures, uh, in the 50s, German, the German government began to pile up debts. In the 70s, these debts amounted to more than the government could pay back ever. So we are stuck since the 70s with that amount of debts. We will not be able to pay them back ever. Since the late 70s, um, the interest rate on the debts is bigger than the newly borrowed money each year. 
So the debts become totally insane because the money we borrow is less than we have to spend on interest. Um, so we become slaves um, and we will never get out of that spiral except if there's a major uh, inflation. And in history, we all only had inflations connected with wars. And so at that point, I decided to make a do documentary about that because I wanted to find out what, what, what will really happen if these debts grow, and they do grow a lot now. Um, yeah, so um, if you're researching something like that, uh, the inner sound. Uh, today, I was, uh, just a few hours ago, I was in an espresso bar and uh, listening to an old woman who said, well, uh, this country is too big to go down because of the financial crisis. Maybe we, there will be a little recession, but in five years we will, will be on our, on our feet again. Coming back to the question if I am a journalist, a reportage, what I do admit is a reportage, a coverage, is an interpretation of reality. There's somebody researching and then he interprets or she interprets reality. A radio documentary is a product of reality that remains open to interpretation itself because it's, it can be ambiguous. Um, so listening between the loudspeakers is perhaps not what you want when you seek basic information. So this is why radio documentaries become very uh, difficult to listen to also, maybe. Um, but listening to that woman in the espresso bar, I, I think this, this is a, really a core ambition of journalism, to, to give more than hard facts, to differentiate wherever possible. Because um, there is a longing for simplicity. Uh, I, I feel it. Um, unalterable beliefs. Uh, longing for sharp distinction between right and wrong. But if you give, give into this crap about the good guys, you know, and the bad guys, and, and um, the axis of evil, <laughs> and uh, you're either with us or against us, uh, then you're creating trenches, whereas as a journalist, I think our mission is to create understanding. So this was, was so tough to do when, when I researched the the um, state indebtment. I will play you a last excerpt. Um, you have the translation, it's two pages. Um, so this is at the end of the radio documentary. We have heard many politicians, former financial ministers of Germany, um, and we have heard so many pros and cons that your head twirls and you don't know wrong from right anymore. And Dann sieht das in ungefähr wie folgt aus. Schule? Nein, bist du wahnsinnig geworden. Forschung und Entwicklung? Nein. Gewerbeförderung? Nein. This is the financial minister of Germany in a TV. So just the preceding scene of what you have as a transcript is uh, the narrator sits in front, in, at home in front of the TV and he has heard the financial minister saying in Germany we have to be careful, no more debts. And a few weeks later, he sees him on TV saying, oh, now we have to spend money for education, you know. And so the scene is the narrator goes and drives to the parliament and talks to the financial minister. And this is where we start.
Ich hatte genug von dem Dilemma. Und ich hatte genug vom Telefonieren. Ich fuhr zum Bundestag und wollte von dem Finanzminister Peer Steinbrück wissen, wie es weitergehen wird. Staatsschulden sind ja nicht per se etwas Schlechtes. Doch. Langsam hatte ich den Eindruck, dass genau dies der Fall war. Zwar nicht im gedachten Raum, aber in der Wirklichkeit. Wenn Sie Schulden aufnehmen, um Investitionen zu finanzieren, die zukünftig eine Rendite abwerfen, dann kann das durchaus Sinn machen. Nein, wirklich, was Sie nicht sagen. Also Sie nehmen Geld auf, um zum Beispiel im Bereich von Bildung, Forschung und Entwicklung Infrastruktur zu investieren, Zukunftsinvestitionen. Davon ist wahrscheinlich der zukünftige Wohlstand der Republik abhängig. Aber insgesamt geben wir, machen wir zu viel Schulden und geben die Konsumtiv aus. Und wir haben ein sehr hohes Verschuldensniveau. Sagte der amtierende Finanzminister Peer Steinbrück und fertig war die Heuchelei, mit der sich auch alle Amtsinhaber in allen Regierungen vor ihm durchgemogelt haben. Es machte alles keinen Sinn. Wir müssen aufhören, uns weiter zu verschulden und wir müssen uns verschulden, bevor wir damit aufhören. Wir müssen von der hohen Staatsschuld runter, aber auf der anderen Seite uns nicht ins Koma sparen, sondern Geld ausgeben dort, wo es Sinn macht für die Zukunft dieser Republik. Sie würden also, wenn es nach Ihnen... Ich stellte ihm noch einige Fragen aus Höflichkeit und verabschiedete mich dann bald. Nee, nicht so einfach. Natürlich müssen wir bei der Nettokreditaufnahme runterkommen. Vielen Dank, Herr Steinbrück. Staatsschulden sind ja nicht per se etwas Schlechtes. Doch, langsam hatte ich den Eindruck, dass genau dies der Fall war. Zwar nicht im gedachten Raum, aber in der Wirklichkeit. Wenn Sie Schulden aufnehmen, um Investitionen Meine, dann brauchen Sie mich nicht. Die zukünftig eine Rendite Wenn ich sage, es ist nicht per se falsch oder schlecht, Schulden zu machen, dann kommt dann eine Zwischenbemerkung und sagt, doch. Die, 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 die Zwischenkommentare, die, 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 die Sie oder jemand anderer machen, die kann ich nicht teilen. So at this point, a German voice explains that we meet a second time for a longer interview. Uh, das, womit ich Schwierigkeiten habe, Sie haben einen sehr apodiktischen Standpunkt. Ja. Ja, Ihre ganzen Ihre ganze Fragen lassen durchblicken. Keine Schulden. Ich halte das ökonomisch und gesellschaftlich für Quatsch. Das ist ein bisschen, wenn ich sagen darf, das ist Voodoo-Ökonomie. Es geht mir halt darum... Also diese Staatsverschuldung ist total widersinnig heutzutage. Wenn man damit nie begonnen hätte, dann hätte man heute was weiß ich wie viele Milliarden mehr, die man allein in die Zinsen reinstecken muss. Zum Beispiel 40 Milliarden Euro Zinsen im Bundeshaushalt. Das ist auf Dauer natürlich unerträglich. Würden Sie denn sagen, die Bundesrepublik hätte nie anfangen sollen, Schulden aufzunehmen? Nein. Im Sinne von Zukunftsvorsorge und Investitionen in die Zukunft ist es möglich und erlaubt, Schulden zu machen. Aber das ist doch auch widersprüchlich. Dann ist es für mich irgendwie eine, eine, eine nicht auf den Konsens der Realität kommen wollende Haltung. Letztendlich ist es das Bequemste, immer weiter Schulden aufzunehmen, oder? Jetzt behaupte ich ja gar nicht, dass wir weiter Schulden aufnehmen sollen. Im Gegenteil, ich habe gesagt, wir müssen zunächst, der erste Schritt ist, von der Neuverschuldung herunterzukommen. Ja, also ich, ich äh, glaube Ihnen gerne. Und nee, offenbar nicht. <lacht> ja. Also ich, ich habe halt meine Zweifel, weil das, was Sie fast wortwörtlich gesagt haben, auch alle Finanzminister vor Ihnen gesagt haben, auch mit Ausnahme Oskar Lafontaines, der unbedingt viel Schulden machen wollte, und es hat einfach nie geklappt. Ja, da muss man auch sehen, unter welchen obwaltenden Bedingungen, auch nach der deutschen Wiedervereinigung. Da kann man ja bestimmte Phasen herbeiführen, wo man zu dem Ergebnis kommt, dass sowohl Herr Stoltenberg wie Herr Weigel vielleicht in einer anderen Situation gewesen sind als ich. Und das gilt wahrscheinlich schon im Vergleich zwischen der Amtszeit von Herrn Eichel und mir. 
So Und natürlich ist mir bewusst, dass es auf der einen Seite die Möglichkeit gibt zu sagen, ja, da müssen wir eigentlich mehr Geld in die Hand nehmen und im gleichen Moment oder fünf Minuten später rede ich davon, dass wir Geld einsparen müssen. Das Leben ist widersprüchlich. Ihr und mein privates Leben ist übrigens auch in weiten Teilen widersprüchlich. Mhm. Und müssen wir nicht bereit sein, bis zu einem gewissen Grad Widersprüchlichkeiten zu akzeptieren? Ambivalenzen. Dass etwas per se nicht gut und nicht schlecht ist, sondern dass es beides sein kann. I think it, it is clear, right? I mean, I played to him what I have recorded and mixed, you know, I, I played to him my inner sound, uh, what I had made from the previous interviews, and I aroused his anger a lot. He was really very angry. He became very red <laughs> in the face. Um, and then he opened up, in a way, uh, Not as far as a real human, but as far as a <laughs> financial minister, it's, it's, it's uh, astounding. It, yeah, I mean, that, that was one way. But I was very lucky because I was the only person allowed to interview him more than 10 minutes in the whole year of 2007. And uh, I was so lucky to, be able to have so much time with him to be able to play to him uh, my, my excerpts. I mean, that, that was a really outstanding chance also, which I am not too satisfied with what I made from it. Um, but anyway, it's, it's, it's one, I think it's something that could be used with any other individual too, if you, if you in, make interviews over a larger amount of time. I think this would work very well. Please. Yeah, you didn't see what he opened up until you opened up, until he, like, you, know, you kind of You said it straight to him exactly what you were looking for, and that's when you got his actual inner sound. Right, it's my deficiency too. I mean, it's it's I cannot articulate myself uh, except in the in the radio documentaries I make, and so this was really the way to open up myself too. You're right. It's a. I have a question just about the, the style of, of this. <coughs> well, the German style of having a. A narrator on top of the reporter. Uh, It's not a German style. Well, I worked at the features department at Seven Five Berlin for a while, and I know that they did that there as well. Um, but what do you mean it's not a German style? It seems like that that is a common thing there. Oh, I mean, I'm, I hardly listen to, to radio features so much, uh, but I was told that the German narrator is something completely different. Uh, the German style would be. I am told, uh, to have the narrator but not the reporter. You, you, you cut yourself out in the original recordings and you have somebody completely else leading through the documentary. But you ha I, I did like a dialogue between myself and myself, you know, and that... that oh, okay. oh that's, that's you consistent throughout. When it says narrator, that's always, that's always you. The oh, character. no, in that case, it was the singer of a band, uh, but... <laughs> it, it, <laughs> that's but, what I mean, is that, but he's speaking Uh, it's a very odd thing, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's odd, yeah. Uh, especially when you're <laughs> <laughs> just so extremely personal, and you are building this rapport with him, then to have someone come in and act, essentially, and pretend to be you in the narration. Yeah. The only thing, uh, the, the only reason I did that was because um, I will show you, his, uh, his name is
a band that you may know, probably not. Pure Vernunft darf niemals siegen. Wir brauchen dringend neue Lügen. This is the music I used for the music of the band. They are very popular in Germany. And, um, and so I wanted to match the singer and the narrator and I asked von Lotso. And, and yeah, it's as far as my impersonation through him goes, it's not working, I agree. But it's just a strange okay. conception, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, back when I was working with people who were doing it that way, it made some sense to have someone who could really speak well, do the narration rather than some, some reporters maybe wouldn't uh, read the script as, as good as some of these actors could. I think that was the, the reason. But at the end of the day, it just seems like for a piece that's so personal to have someone else narrating, it seems very... Well, it's not really personal. It's about, I mean... Well, well you have to do your own personal stamp on it. I yes. But I wanted, yes, I also wanted it to sound like a Märchen, uh, a fairy tale, and that's why I had this kind of narrator who, he, it's, what's also very, very strange is that he speaks in the past tense. He says, oh, that was then and then, uh, once upon a time, you know. It, yeah, it's, it's strange. I, I, I just, I tried very hard to, <laughs> to do this, this topic, uh, national depths, to turn it into something more lively. And, <laughs> uh, how do you how do you come to to uh, your stories? How do you how do you um, decide on a particular piece? How do you know that that piece is going to help you capture what you call the the inner sound? I don't know really. Uh, it was just like I lined out uh, that question: what what will happen? And I was so surprised that the national debt was in the media all the time, every day but never answering that question, so that is something that triggers me off. I have found that I mostly do uh, radio documentaries about topics that are well known already. I, I don't do news in a way, but I try to tell the story in a new way. And um, it's, it's something that catches my interest, but uh, before I did lifestyle, I don't know the sound of it when I'm researching. I, Cannot tell you. I cannot answer your question. I think. How, how did you happen to find those the two women at the beginning, for instance? The, 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 the oh, the the yeah. Um, the, yeah I um, actually, this was the beginning of my work, and I was I was going to editors um, soliciting uh, with with sounds I recorded, and I, I needed money, <laughs> and they they were feeling my enthusiasm. Enthusiasm uh, for the matter, and they gave me this was the only uh, thing that was given to me. They said, Do you know a prostitute minor of age? And I said, Yeah, of course. Um, <laughs> and, then I, uh, and then I had to go, I, I started on the street really where they stand, and I failed shame, shamefully. Uh, because this was a totally wrong approach, and I had to learn a lot in approaching them through uh, social workers, and so I really found them like anybody would. Uh, very difficult. Thank you. I just wondered, from a journalistic point of view, and maybe that's not a word that you would apply necessarily, but so you talk about ambivalence in documentary, and I'll sort of opening up the ambivalence and complexity and letting people hear the intercourse or decide for themselves, but for instance in the, the documentary about debt, I mean that 
that reporter voice and the narrator is heavily rhetorical, right? I mean, it's not just you, it's like you with a very serious point of view. And so I wonder, journalistically, how that holds up in terms of opening up ambiguity or when people hear something new about the story. I mean, are you taking the position that you're, like my Aunt Shirley at home who's just really mad at all the politicians and is gonna go in there and tell them that? Like, no, only instrumentally. I think uh, the important thing is that the balance is kept. I am a great supporter of transparency and when I say, yes, this is my view, which I haven't uh, uh, articulated in the whole 50 minutes that were preceding that scene, um, the finance minister responds to that and, said, and says, you as a journalist, you have a preset view. And I think that is transparent enough for the, for the listeners uh, to decide themselves. They, they, they really notice, okay, yeah, he has made up his mind, but it's not necessarily my, my view on that. And yeah, so, so I think a strong opinion is okay as long as you make it transparent and as long as you have a weight on the other side. So in this documentary about the debt, where was the weight on the other side? Because really, in that scene that we've seen, which is all we've seen, I mean, you come in with a strong point of view, and he comes out looking like a bit of an idiot. No, not really. I mean, I think he has a strong point at the end of it. Uh, life is ambiguous. Your private life is ambiguous too. Uh, don't judge on, 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 on the government to be really more than you are. I think this is a good point. And how I respond to that, how the, it ends, uh, the conclusion more or less, this really has a conclusion, is that I just say that I miss the times when we were free to choose. Now we have to consume in order to keep the common economy growing. But we, we cannot say we don't want to grow, because if we don't grow, the national debt will kill us. And by saying that, I don't give the fault for that situation to anybody. Because it's the whole of, of, of the German people who have uh, profited from it too. Maybe not everybody equally, but uh, it's, it's not the, the fault of the politicians alone. And I think this comes out clearly. But still it's a view, it's an emotional view on, on the subject because you could say, oh why not, economy is growing, that's great. I mean, let's, let's spend, spend, spend. It's definitely not that kind of view. But it's not a view against anybody in particular. I, I'm very careful not to do that, except if I feel like with Adidas, they are too big, they are too strong, they are too arrogant, then I feel, yes, I as a small journalist, I can take a position and really smash them, because they are big enough to, to endure that. Listener have the same reaction. 
I think it would be a dramaturgical decision to uh, make it, to turn that situation into a shocking situation for the listener and not for me experiencing that. <laughs> and I would, I would probably uh, do something I've seen, I don't know, I, was, I would be experimenting, but uh, the first guess would be to do it like in Run Lola Run, to have a nice music that would be cut off in the moment of the explosion, make the explosion louder. I, later I recorded explosions from nearer to make it nearer also and to, to enhance the, the whole thing in a way that, that you're really not only surprised but you're taken aback. But this is something that I think goes without rules. You have to feel it in the studio. Yeah. But, but something like that is... is um, it's thinkable, you know, to do that in that kind of situation. You just have to decide if it's if it's a if it's a necessary thing. Alessandro. Yeah, I have a question. Um, well, I want to go back to the documentary. I, I think it's great this, this interview with Steinmeier. Uh, I really like this thing that you played back to him uh, because I really like the reaction. I really like the tone, the tone of voice he had. After, like, I was thinking, wow, this intimacy with a politician, amazing. Uh, I never hear that. And uh, I was wondering if you would ever work in, in the United States. Like, I'm seeing a lot of stuff in the campaign on TV. And uh, I used to live in Germany for a long time. And I see a big difference. I mean, here is a lot about emotions, a lot about family, a lot about feelings. It's fake, 99,9%. But all these people, you guys, I can't vote here, supposed to vote, uh, they all play about emotions. Um, so, how would you translate? Like, I would be curious to, 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 to see what you would do. Like, you had to work here uh, and try to get at that point, you know, to, to get that tone with a high position. Uh, I always felt like American politicians are so they are they are playing so good. They are so so good actors. I mean, not only Ronald Reagan, but everybody. And I think this is the hard. I mean, I'm so happy not to be a journalist here <laughs> because I, I wouldn't know how to open them up because everything is show. And I really had the impression, the deep feeling that uh, uh, this financial minister didn't put up a show for me. He was really serious. He was really talking to me. He was scolding me and uh, to an extent that could harm him also. You know, it's, he gave away something. And uh, I think politicians here would be just too trained to do that. I mean, at least the top politicians. And, um, and yes, it's, it's uh, for me to see McCain is, is, is really giving me the creeps because I am so remembered of Ronald Reagan, in, in the, not in the early years when he was a candidate, but in the last years when he was really not having so, so much of a grip uh, about reality. <laughs> And um, it's, 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 yeah, I mean, I, I, I honestly, I don't think I could do that here. I would stand, I wouldn't stand a chance, I think. You had a question. 
to that point, I mean, did, like I, I'm thinking, I don't know that you'd be able to get access to, to a politician here without it being scripted like that. So unless it was someone who really knew your work and was really comfortable with your work and liked your style and kind of wanted to Oh, it's in Germany the same thing. I mean, I went through very, very high places to get that interview. The so highest place. Did this person place. know your, like, do you think he was caught off guard by your style, or is it, was this somebody who knew your work and was familiar with your style and no. was willing to be subjected to that? No, 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 not at all. Uh, the politicians here and in Europe don't stand a chance to make a decision about their time plan at all, not even five minutes. I mean, Obama will be no different. Uh, it's, it's their spin doctors who do the time frame for them and um, so how did you get that access then? i through through very high ranked people in in politics and in media uh, there was a personal connection to the to the man who is the manager of his timetable so when the financial minister walked into room and he didn't know me, he didn't know my work, he didn't know what he was expecting. It could be a contract signment too. I mean, he, he doesn't know the politicians. They are just... Heard it in. Yeah. And uh, he asked how long this interview would be and the manager said half an hour. And he said, what? <laughs> <laughs> he, he hadn't experienced that for two years. I mean, it's like... Did he enjoy that? And it was Christmas. <laughs> it was the day before Christmas. And that's, that's, I think, where the intimacy comes from, too. It's, it's everything calmed down. And, uh, so is he enjoying that? No. Uh, at first, yes, he was drinking <laughs> coffee. And, and when I played, uh, and, and he was just giving his statements. And the interesting thing is, when I played back what I had mixed, he thought that it was what he just said a few minutes ago, because it was the same phrasing. He, he, uh, I started the same interview, he didn't even remember the first interview. And so, so he was really very, I think he would have been more angry if, if he wasn't so dumbfounded. Uh, how could I play back that with a voice where it's coming? He was totally... <laughs> and uh, so, it, yeah, this is a, not a common thing. I think the times. Yeah, just perfect timing. Thank you.